Africa rise and shine Africa tsoka Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko, and Sigile Lungwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. South Sudan peace talks set to resume in Addis Ababa and Botswana's new president vows to tackle youth unemployment. In economics news, Murray and Roberts awarded a $312 million in mi- new mining projects. And in sports news, the Commonwealth Games get underway today in Australia. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. 21 civilians, including four women and four children, have been killed in fighting in the Central African Republic. A United Nations peacekeeper has also been killed and 11 others wounded when anti-Balaka fighters attacked a temporary UN base. UN mission in the Central African Republic, MINUSCA, says 22 anti-Balaka fighters were killed in the exchange. MINUSCA further says the bodies of the civilians were found near church and that the deaths resulted from a separate incident. The Central African Republic has been struggling to return to, to stability since 2013 when the Seleka rebels overthrew long-time leader Francois Pouzizé. South Korea's government has officially distanced itself from Miro Systems Co. Ltd., a firm providing electronic voting machines to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Tensions are hunting... Uh, running high in the DRC ahead of a presidential poll in December. In an email sent to AFP, the South Korean embassy spelled out what it called the government's official position, expressing concern that the contract could become embroiled in the DRC's political crisis. The vote, due on the 23rd of December, has been twice postponed since 2016. Flags across South Africa and at all missions abroad are flying at half-mast until the evening of struggle icon Winnie Madigizela Mandela's funeral. Twelve days of national mourning have been declared. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says Madigizela Mandela's special official funeral will take place at the Orlando Stadium in Soweto in Johannesburg next week Saturday. Presidential spokesperson Kusela Diko. President Ramaphosa has made it very clear that Umama Winnie Mandela must be afforded the highest honor that we can afford a citizen in this country. You'll remember she is a recipient of the Order of Lutuli for her sterling contribution to our struggle for liberation, but also during our democratic dispensation. It is for this reason then that the president has declared her funeral a special official funeral category one. President Ramaphosa continues to send his condolences to the family Gamamo Winimatigizela Mandela and he wishes them strength during this difficult time of loss. 
Somalia's lower house parliamentary speaker Mohammed Osman Jawari has maintained he will not resign as being pushed by the executive as a motion, a motion to impeach him is slated for debate. Addressing a news conference in the capital Mogadishu, Jawari said the parliamentary sitting meant to discuss his conduct was illegal and unconstitutional. The speaker has been accused by lawmakers of violating the constitution, also accused President Muhammad Famajo of escalating the political crisis in the Horn of African nation by asking him to resign instead of resolving the crisis without taking sides. And tens of thousands of Brazilians have taken to the streets in the cities across the country to demand the imprisonment of former President Lula da Silva. He has been sentenced to 12 years for corruption but is seeking to remain free pending further appeals. The Supreme Court is due to rule this afternoon. The BBC's Cathy Watson reports. People in the crowds here want to see Lula jail. There are several different groups who've come together, many of them right-wing movements. They came to prominence during the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff and they've capped up the pressure on the Workers' Party. Now, you speak to people here and they say they're here to fight against corruption. It's not just about Lula, but it's clear that Lula is the biggest symbol of corruption here in Brazil. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Talks aimed at reviving South Sudan peace agreements that collapsed in 2015 resume on the 26th of this month in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. As the people of the country wait for resumption for the talks, the Catholic Church's leadership there wants government and opposition representatives to sign the long-awaited peace agreement to end the suffering of the people of Africa's newest nation. James Shemangula has more. The Djibouti-based Intergovernmental Authority on Development in Shorty Igad has announced that the on-and-off peace talks aimed at reviving South Sudan peace agreement that collapsed in 2015 will resume on the 26th of this month in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. The talks involved the Juba government representatives, leaders of nine political opposition parties, as well as former detainees and representatives of rebel leader Riek Machar. The talk have been on and off due to disagreements over several clauses contained in the agreement. At times, the talks ended abruptly or witnessed walkover and heated argument from parties involved. As the people of South Sudan again eagerly wait for resumption of the talks, the general talk in Juba and other parts of the country is that the long-time elusive peace should be restored in the country with express purpose of putting Africa's newest nation at permanent peace. Those greatly concerned with the peace prevailing in South Sudan include the Archbishop of the Juba-based Catholic Church, Paulino Lokudu-Loro, addressing a congregation at St. Teresa Church in Juba. Loro decried the plight of the people of 
of South Sudan. Echoes of his cries revolved around the plunder of the country's resources, including oil, poverty, corruption, hunger, and the suffering of people, especially the homeless, that are now reported to be settling on the streets of the capital, Juba. We all know the high level of injustice committed against the poor people by cheating them through greed, lies, and other immoral practices. We are witnessing hunger, lack of good education, delay of monthly salaries, no serious working going on in our offices, no electricity power and water in our towns, high corruption in public sectors, high prices of essential commodities. The Catholic Archbishop's remarks come at a time when, as I have said at the outset, South Sudan peace talks are to resume in the last week of this month in Addis Ababa. Archbishop Paulino Lokudoloro pleads with the parties expected to attend the Addis Ababa talks to sign the long-awaited agreement that will automatically pave the way for the revival of the peace agreement that collapsed in 2015. The leaders of the government of the Republic of South Sudan and the opposition groups to seriously consider the felt need of the sufferings of the people of South Sudan for true and lasting peace. Indeed, that lasting peace is all the people of South Sudan are yearning for. To add weight on the continued cry for permanent peace are ordinary people of South Sudan. Here are voices of some of them. Let them look into the suffering of the people of South Sudan. But if they continue to look on the position whereby I want to be the president, I want to be this, we will never get this peace. The peace is failing because we are seeing the chairs are the most important. IGAD will never, never bring peace to this country. Except ourselves as South Sudanese, we can sit down and negotiate our own problem because this problem is our problem. It's not the outsider problem. It's not IGAD problem or Trika problem. It's South Sudanese problem. Why we don't give us chance for South Sudanese? Perhaps the chance that that South Sudan citizen is speaking about will come shortly to bring permanent peace in Africa's newest nation. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Botswana's new president, Mohizi Masisi, has vowed to tackle the southern African country's youth unemployment, which stands at about 20%. Masisi was sworn in as Botswana's new leader, taking over from Ian Khama, who stepped down after he completed the constitutional maximum of 10 years in office. The carefully managed transition of power comes ahead of parliamentary elections scheduled for next year. Channel Africa's Kumbele Munjelele spoke to Frank Ligaba, researcher at the Africa Institute of South Africa, about what to expect from Masisi's presidency. There's too much to make out of the transition. First, is that smooth, as you have indicated, smooth transition of power from uh, uh, previous head of state, Ian Hama, to the current head of state, without any complication. I think this has to do firstly the fact that the, 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 the ruling party in Botswana uh, is, is very confident and has been handling this. Remember, this happened during the time of uh, Mr. Fitas Mahai when he gave over power to, 
to, to, to, the, to the current outgoing, the outgoing president, Ian Kham, is a culture that seems to be uh, established. I think uh, in Botswana it's working very well because the population is very small, uh, the, the political, the opposition parties are polarized, though now they have uh, decided to come together and form an umbrella. Uh, they call it a democratic change for a coalition. They want to mount a very strong coalition against the, or the ruling party. Sure. Uh, so there are so many things to learn from, but what, what stands out here is the smooth transition. Uh, I remember even I, when the party held their conference last year, uh, the ruling party in South Africa sent uh, the minister uh, at to go and observe. And she came back and said uh, they have shared land, how, how this process is handled in, in, the, in the ruling party in Botswana, Botswana Democratic Party. And she thinks that the ruling party in South Africa has to learn from that. And I just want to extend that not only the ruling party, but almost all opposition parties in the country, in the region, in the continent, should learn how to handle this issue of uh, political contestation. Some people call it a succession, but I don't know how to call it because in a political space, you can conduct the affairs of the politics as if it's a traditional authority. So I think among other things, it goes with the kind of the democracy that is embraced in the country, the, the level of development. There are so many factors to consider. So I think in Botswana it has worked for them and something that we can learn from and probably imitate and, and address it in, in, in a way that it will suit our environment in our own countries. Now we know that uh, Masisi is a close ally of the outgoing President Ian Kama and a BDP veteran. What more can you tell us about him, uh, Mr. Likaba? Yeah, the, uh, from, what, uh, from the little research I've been doing, I've learned that he's also well-educated. He's from a very aristocratic society, family. He's been in government. He has got experience. So here we're talking about somebody who is not just going to be a, a lady of the former president, but somebody who might come in and try to uh, uh, assert his own authority. Because that's the task of each and every leader, to remake yourself out of probably your relationship of the previous leader. Ian Khamer has done that. He has worked closely with a, a, a former president, Chistos Mohai. He worked very closely with him, but when he took over the reins, he, to a certain extent, asserted his authority, particularly on the social behavior of, of the people of the country. He emphasized that, you remember the, the tax on, on alcohol, uh, all of that. Uh, this was claimed to be his personal trade and what he believes in as a person. But in the system of, of, of governance, he did not do serious disruptions. He took over and continued to, to maintain what Mr. Mokhai had done. So I think as well with, with Mr. Mokhai, uh, he would do the same thing. He would assert his own authorities, he would identify areas where he needs to assert his, assert his own authority. But I don't think it's going to disrupt or change uh, dramatically what is inheriting from uh, Mr. Ian Hama. The outgoing president, Ian Hama, was uh, not afraid to ruffle feathers at home and beyond, uh, once taking on China over a planned visit by the Dalai Lama and regularly criticizing former Zimbabwean president Robert Mugabe's decades-long grip on power. But at the same time, critics accused Kama of uh, being authoritarian and secretive. Do you think Masisi will continue 
continue where Kama left off? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because remember, most of those uh, policy positions were as a result of a reflection of who President Kama was as an individual. And only look at uh, uh, Mr. Mukwete. One thing I've discovered is that he, he, he appears to be a consensus man. He believes in the people he works with. He believes in, in obtaining opinions of other people. Uh, it is alleged that one of his close allies is the Secretary General of the uh, Botswana Democratic Party, Nathan Pobalupi. So he's kind of a person who consults all, most of the time when he has to take a decision. It's from the little research I've done. So that tells you that that kind of a presence would not be forthright as the previous president. Uh, as you have just indicated, Ian Connor was, was perceived or was portrayed to be this person who was very authoritarian, who believed in his own conviction. But this one here, I think there's going to be, we're going to see a little change. It might be there consistency in terms of, especially foreign policy position that does not uh, allow a, a, a rock state to be respected in the continent. Remember how the AU and SADC has been uh, handling certain issues, Zimbabwe's indicated, and other countries. But Botswana was very clear on its foreign policy position. That's frankly Gaba, researcher in the Governance and Security Unit at the Africa Institute of South Africa, speaking to Kumbele Mujelele. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. For the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholisasa Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. The funeral of the late African National Congress Starwat Mam Uwini Madigizela Mandela will be held in Fourways, north of Johannesburg, on Saturday, the 14th of April. The 81-year-old struggle icon passed away at the Millpark Hospital on Monday. Earlier, the Abatembu Royal Kingdom said it's prepared to lay her to rest in Kunu as per their tradition, but the Mandela family has confirmed Johannesburg as her final resting place. Ndebo Mukobo reports. Tributes are still pouring in for the late ANC struggle icon Winimatigisela Mandela since her passing South Africans from all walks of life have come to the Mandela homestead to pay their last respects. This range from government officials including past and present presidents Tabombek and Cyril Ramaphosa, as well as Deputy President David Mabuza and scores of cabinet ministers, leaders of different political parties like the EFF Julius Malema and some members of his central command also visited the family. The Cosanto delegation was led by Stumotlamen and his general secretary Pekin Chalinchali with the ordinary people of Soweto laying their wreaths outside the family house. Although a date has been set for the funeral, 
it wasn't clear where she will be buried. But family spokesperson Temba Matanzima says Johannesburg will be a final resting place. There will be a memorial service on the 11th, as discussed with the government. There will be a funeral on the 14th, again as agreed to by all of us, and the funeral in Gauteng at Four Ways. We thought it is necessary for us to come and clear this so that there is no confusion about other venues. If there are any other details, minor details, they will be communicated properly because we don't want confusion. EFF leader Julius Malema led hundreds of his supporters to the Mandela House. After being expelled from the ANC, Malema went to Madikizela Mandela to seek comfort. And it is no secret that Mamuini's wish was to see Malema back in the ANC. Speaking about someone he regarded as a mother and a source of inspiration, Malema says she refused to be separated with Madikizela Mandela in life and in death. We are proud to be here because we never neglected her. We regarded her as our mother, we regarded her as our leader, and she will continue to be our leader. We are here to say... To the people of South Africa, the spear has fallen and we are here to pick up that spear and continue the fight. So when we are here in this home, we are not visitors, we are the children of this home. We grew up here, we ate food here, we slept here and uh, we are not coming here because it is fashionable today to come here. We did not ask anyone for direction to come here because we knew where she stayed and we supported her throughout. Malema also urged his supporters to come out in their numbers during the planned memorial services across the country and at the day of a funeral. He said there will be maximum discipline to give a royal send-off to someone revered as the mother of the nation as well as the voice of the voiceless and the most downtrodden. You know the truth about who is Winnie Mandela. We failed to defend her when she was alive. It is our turn now, before we bury her, to go all out and defend her. She died a leader of our nation. She died with the integrity intact because she never sold out. Even when she was in isolation, she never befriended the enemy. So we're saying to Mama, rest in peace, we'll continue the good fight. Meanwhile, Communications Minister Nom Fulamu Konyane has hailed the unity displayed by different political parties outside the Mandela homestead, saying unity of black people is what Mema Digizela Mandela stood for. We are quite elated also by the sign of uh, unity of uh, different organizations and different people and communities. But for now, the family and uh, the government, the ANC and the church are all at work to pull everything together so that then there can be information that goes out for everyone to understand what is the process and the activities going forward. Government has organized an official memorial service at a venue still to be decided on the 11th of April with a special official funeral scheduled for the 14th of April where President Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to deliver an eulogy. I am Tebo Mokobo, Orlando West in Soweto.
Gallant and defiant is how former Deputy President of South Africa, Pumzilem Lambongoka, has described the late Mam Winnie Madigizela Mandel. Our U.S. correspondent, Sean Bryce-Peace, has this reaction from the U.N. in New York, where he began by asking Mlambongoka about learning of the sad news. Profound sadness, because uh, I think I'm one of the many people who didn't see this coming. So condolences to the family and to all of us uh, who have to contain our grief. She will be solely remembered as a gallant fighter against apartheid, who fought for women, fought for her community, and fought for the oppressed people, period. I'm glad you mentioned community. Community was very important to her. She never uh, moved from her Orlando home in Soweto. She believed that being with the people, staying around the people was, was critical to political thought in South Africa. I, that is very much like her because I think she believed that she was a rock and it was important to be there for people so that they have something to lean on. Mm. When you picture the phrase, you strike a woman, you strike a rock, that epitomizes Winnie Mandela. This is who she was. She also fought a system that was brutal and the fact that she was defiant at every turn gave many of us the courage also to fight back in our own small way because we had this larger than life personality who was leading from the front. You, you talk about uh, you know, this type of militancy that, that she was also known for. She was, of course, uh, ANC Women's League president from 1993. I think she stayed in that position for a decade. Uh, at a time when you were in government, you were in the uh, Mandela administration and then subsequently the Mbeki administration, what was that militancy like from a governmental perspective? And did it hurt her standing both in South Africa and internationally? You know, apartheid was not a friendly system to fight against. You had to be tough and sometimes to be militant in order to fight decisively. I don't think that uh, we can charge David for picking up a stone to throw at Goliath. She fought the best way she knew how. She was, of course, almost famously uh, the one that accompanied Nelson Mandela soon out of prison when he came to the United States, to New York City. Uh, she really did stand by Nelson Mandela throughout trials and tribulations, his incarceration, right up until you know, things went, went differently. Uh, they went their different ways. What do you make of that relationship? Well, uh, it was a special relationship, a relationship between two, two people. But what I would say was that Winnie was an icon in her own right. Uh, she was uh, next to another icon, but in her own right, she was outstanding. For decades, when we couldn't relate to the leaders, she was the go-to person that helped to glue uh, many of the different uh, factions and groupings within the country. And that is why she earned the name Mother of the Nation. Final question for you. A personal story. I mean, you were in the ANC when she was in the ANC. You were in government together, in parliament together. Anything you'd like to share with us? You know, the stories I remember about Winnie that are personal, I think I'd keep them personal. Something to chuckle about and think about her warmly. 
That's Pumzile Mlambo Nguka, South Africa's former deputy president and current executive director of UN Women, speaking to Show and Bryce Peace in New York. Meanwhile, former president of South Africa, Tabombeki, has warned against those who seek to single out individuals in celebrating the role people played in the struggle for freedom. He says the likes of the late Mam Uwini Matigizela Mandela need to be honored for their role as a collective, which includes all women who fought for the liberation of South Africa. Beggy was speaking in an interview with the SABC in which he shared the life and times of Omam Wini Matigizela Mandel. Abongile Tumako reports. Former President Tabom Beggy has acknowledged the important role the late Wini Matigizela Mandela played in the liberation of South Africa. But he says she wasn't alone and so celebrations must be broadened to include all the women in the struggle. It's not as though we went alone. They were, they were in struggle when collective. When they, they were in jail, detained was in 1969. Uh, it was together with uh, Samson Doe, with Wallace Rote, with Joyce Kakane, with Snuggis Galala, and that whole group. So when you talk about people engaged in struggle, ready to sacrifice, sure, she's part of that. In celebrating here, I think we need to talk in those terms. Mbeki says although the life of the late struggle icon Winima Digizela Mandela must be celebrated, her past was also littered with controversies. In 1991, she was convicted of kidnapping and assault over the killing of a young activist, Stombi Mwekezi. The 14-year-old who was accused of being an informer was murdered in 1989 by Matigizela Mandela's bodyguards, the Mandela United Football Club. Matigizela Mandela's six-year jail term was reduced to a fine and a two-year suspension on appeal. Mbegi explains. There's a difficult period in her life, the period when, for instance, she got involved with this Mandela Football Club. From Lusaka, Ulvatambo, we intervened on this matter to try to say to her, this thing is wrong, let's just move away from this thing. didn't work. Part of what happened with that Mandela Football thing were bad. For a person like that, who had made a very important contribution by the need and the possibility to stand up, to say no to oppression, doesn't matter how many times I get detained, the struggle must continue. To spoil that kind of role by getting involved in things like that was not right. But I'm saying one regrets it. Now, former President Mbeki says it is true that the late Winima Tigizela Mandela called him to a meeting during the build-up to the ANC's elective conference in Pulugwane. He says during the meeting, Matigizela Mandela said she had spoken to former President Jacob Zuma as well. She then appealed to them not to run for the presidential position, saying she would instead bring a compromise candidate in a situation which would see both Mbeki and Zuma not contesting. Mbeki says he agreed to the proposal, but Matigizela Mandela never went back to him with the preferred compromise candidate. He has, however, considered that if that have happened, the ANC wouldn't have found itself experiencing the current divisions. No, she did say that. Look, if you people want to run, if you run, it's going to likely to divide the ANC. And therefore, don't run, both of you, and I'll find a compromise candidate. And so I said, fine, fine, go and find him or her and come back because we can then discuss how you put... This is a person who would not have gone through the nomination processes in the ANC.
So uh, we'd have to find a way if indeed this worked. Meanwhile, the ANC will unveil a 10-day plan of activities to honor the late Mamawini Matigizela Mandela. Party Secretary General Ace Mahashule will lead a delegation of ministers and NEC members to finalize the plan with the family in Soweto. I'm Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. In the headlines, 21 civilians, including four women and four children, have been killed in fighting in the Central African Republic. South Korea officially distances itself from Miru Systems, a firm providing electronic voting machines to the Democratic Republic of Congo, and flags across South Africa and at all missions abroad are flying at half-mast until the evening of struggle icon Winima Digizela Mandela's funeral. Twelve days of national mourning have been declared. Those are the stories making headlines. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Events are planned across the United States to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The 39-year-old Baptist minister died in Memphis, Tennessee on April the 4th in 1968 while standing on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel when a sniper's bullet struck him in the neck, sparking rioting in more than 100 cities across the country. Our New York correspondent show in Bryce Peace looks back at that fateful day and engages both historians and political scientists about King's legacy five decades later. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. There's a famous black and white picture taken moments after the bullet struck Dr. King in the neck, witnesses pointing from the balcony where he lay bloodied to where they thought the shot was fired from. And while conspiracies remain about government and police involvement, drifter James Earl Ray was convicted of the crime and sentenced to 99 years in prison, where he later died. Many people thought that black Americans would just rip this country apart. Dr. Christina Greer is a political scientist and the author of Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. President Kennedy has already been assassinated, so the country's already on edge thinking about how do we, you know, how do we treat our great leaders and what potentially could happen to them. And so I think a lot of... White Americans were afraid that black Americans would burn this country to the ground. 
James Brown in a famous speech after one of his concerts calls for calm, makes, he doesn't want people to riot. You know, there had already been some rebellions in, in major cities uh, in the months and years preceding Dr. King's death. And so I think for some, for some white Americans, they were happy, right? Finally, it happened. Um, and then for others, I think they worried that King's dream would die along with him. Historian Professor Joshua Brown points to that period as a time in America where it was risky standing up and making progressive arguments. This was the, the point of no return for uh, a lot of people who had, had hopes for change and that the reactions that were already beginning the, against a lot of progressive change around, the, around issues of equality had already begun to take place. And I think that this was already seen as both symbolic and also indicative that you could not stand, you, standing up was going to get you killed. I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, yes, sir. however frustrating the hour, it will not be long no, because truth crushed to earth will rise again. Yes, at the time of his death, King was said to be depressed, fatigued at the slow progress they were making towards social justice, while faced with the impatience of a younger generation who increasingly challenged his stance on nonviolence. Professor Brown of the City University of New York is also the executive director of the American Social History Project. It has to be placed in the context of the fact that there have already been a number of assassinations, of course, the assassination of John F. Kennedy um, and the assassination of Malcolm X, which had happened three years before. Mm. So there was already in the air this sort of, um, I guess say, trepidation around public figures. But I think that King was particularly powerful because he was right at the, he was sort of at the cusp, actually, I think, of losing some of his popularity or, or as maybe singularity as a, as a figure. The work the 1964 Nobel Peace Prize recipient was involved in was stressful to say the least, in the face of hate, discrimination and intolerance across the United States. He also began to broaden his message to demand economic justice, not just for black people, but for downtrodden people everywhere. Just for what it's worth, three months later when Kennedy is assassinated, it almost clinches the notion that any public figure that is taking a stand that's a bit shocking to the establishment position is in trouble. He also came out against the Vietnam War in a speech that drew widespread condemnation from the political class at the time, while the FBI regarded him as the most dangerous man in America. Many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Dr. Greer, who also teaches political science at Fordham University, explains. That's a dangerous message for people who are in power who believe in capitalism, white supremacy, and anti-black racism, and patriarchy if someone is trying to collectively gather up all the oppressed people around the globe from country to country to say you know what we can actually rise up and fight for ourselves and then you also have the king who really said you know i want to talk about wage equity i want to talk about a living wage i want to talk about not just jobs but how do we sort of plant a foundation to have a real future not just some pennies on the dollar and that is really dangerous
Fifty years later, he's among the most celebrated Americans with a national holiday in his name and the King Memorial next to the National Mall in Washington. I think that he'd be impressed with some progress, right? Um, record numbers of black electeds holding electoral office uh, across the country. Obviously, he'd, I would assume, be impressed with the fact that this country was able to elect a black president. Um, I think he'd be really disappointed with the amount of residential segregation that still exists, segregation within educational systems. Even when the buildings are integrated, the classrooms are segregated. I think he'd be really disappointed with the lack of wealth that's been able to stay within black communities and sort of the institutional barriers that this country has consistently put up to make sure that black Americans are still not fully incorporated as citizens. Professor Brown takes a more cynical view. Martyrs are forever people who get to be old and get to contradict everything that they had, uh, you know, that they had stood stand for before uh, are, is problematic. I, I, you know, having said that, I've heard some people say things, well, he wouldn't have respect now because he was religious. I think that's nonsense. I think, if anything, one of the things that he was beginning to talk about, uh, even in his, his last writings, was the realization that the tactics had to change that in many ways African Americans would need to fr- confront the necessity to create political blocks in one way or another, that, the, that there was going to have to be a much more practical politics to be involved here. Now that might have taken away his stature, on the other, way, on the other hand he might have ended up being quite effective. The project of racial and economic equity, still very much a work in progress. I'm Sherman Bryspees in New York. International mobile phone operator Orange has announced that it is aiming to become a key player in energy transition in Africa. After the launch of Orange Energy in the Democratic Republic of Congo in December 2017, then Midro in Madagascar in February, Orange now is moving forward with the deployment of its electrification program for rural zones by launching the service in Burkina Faso. Channel Africa's Wandile Kalipa has more. The Orange Energy Solution says it aims to become a key player in energy transition in Africa as it already provides a service offering rural population access to solar energy in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Madagascar. During the recent meeting at the Africa Chief Executive Officers Forum, Orange announced the launch of this service in Burkina Faso, Senegal, Mali, Guinea and Cote d'Ivoire. Jean-Michel Garotet, sponsor of the Orange Project, explains. Well, just to begin, the Group Orange has more than 20 operations in Africa with more than 125 million customers. So we do believe that we have a big opportunity to bring this energy asset to the whole population. You may know that one of the principal aim of our communication was to bring closer our customer from their essential. And we do believe that with our digital assets, we can bring closer the population of all the continents to energy. We have launched a lot of projects in order to test if it was possible for mobile operators to give this asset to the population. And it was a quite good success in Senegal, Ivory Coast, DRC, and we decided to push more this opportunity. Thomas Chalemao, Orange Strategic and Development Director, 
for the zone Middle East and Africa. Talking about the technical aspect of bringing renewable energy to the people says this is based on the needs of the people and getting energy. Well, obviously the reflection we had with Orange started around the huge needs of the populations in getting energy. It is estimated that 300 million people in Africa are currently deprived of any uh, grid connection and that they spend between 10 and 15 dollars per month in fuel, kerosene, recharges, etc. So there is a real market. The second point is that in terms of technicalities, we have chosen to team up with kit manufacturers, which means partners which are specializing for now two to three years in the solar home system pay-as-you-go businesses, starting with Eastern Africa, namely Ghana and Rwanda. And we are basically distributing their solutions, offering to the clients the ability to pay with Orange Money, which is our mobile payment instrument. So basically what the partnership is going to be structured around the following lines. Orange, together with its technical partner, will bring solar home systems, which are little kits of, let's say, 100 to $400 per unit. It's going to be installed in the villages. The material will be composed of solar panels, which will be put at the top of the roof of the habitation. They only improved the lives of people in rural Democratic Republic of Congo and Madagascar. Well, you know, even in uh, the DRC, in, even in Congo, it was not in the rural area, because even in Kinshasa, which is the capital, the electricity is not enough deployed in the city. That was Jean-Michel Garotte, sponsor of the Orange Project, and Thomas Chameleau, Orange Strategic and Development Director for the Zone Middle East and Africa, talking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. Directors in Zimbabwe who engage in fraudulent, reckless or grossly negligent conduct of business will be held accountable while the concealment of beneficial ownership of shares through the use of nominees will be prohibited under the review of the Companies Act. Under the Companies and Other Business Entities Bill, an electronic registry will be introduced for the incorporation and registration of domestic and foreign companies and private business corporations. The surgery on the 67-year-old Companies Act is part of changes under the ease of doing business reforms to lure investors. Kenya is among the hot spots for illegal trade in the critically endangered pangolins. Pangolins, wild mammals, popularly known as scaly anteaters, are famous for their long sticky tongues that they use to trap and eat ants and termites. They are heavily trafficked for their scales. Their meat and scales are said to have medical value. A kilogram of pangolin scales fetches up to 600 million US dollars on the black market. Zambia's National Arts Council The National Museum Board and Zambia Development Agency have partnered with the private enterprise program Zambia to develop a sustainable handicraft market that will lead to the production of high-standard products 
for both local and export market. The Ministry of Tourism and Arts says the partnership will help promote the sales of Zambian crafts both within the tourism sector and through links to export markets. The ministry adds it has identified notable skills within handicraft sector and a significant opportunity for developing sales both within Zambia and beyond. South African engineering and construction group Marion Roberts, which is currently subject to a takeover bid, says it has been awarded 312 million US dollars in new underground mining projects. The firm, which was previously awarded underground mining projects in North and Australasia, says the additional contracts will be for diamond, copper, gold, salt and platinum mines. The projects are due for delivery in two to three years. Cash-strapped South African consumers will have to dig deeper into their pockets as the price of fuel increased significantly with effect from midnight last night. Petrol is up by as much as 72 South African cents per litre for 95 octane, 69 octane a litre for 93 octane and diesel has increased by 65 cents. Illuminating paraffin has dropped by 6 cents per litre and LP has increased by 29 cents per kilogram. The Energy Department's Robert Mike explains some of the reasons for the increases. The main reason for this adjustment is the inclusion of the fuel levy in the road extent fund that is 52 cents a litre on both petrol and diesel and also the adjustment to the transport tariffs. These are the pipeline transportation costs as well as the road transportation costs. And then we also have the decommissioning of the old pipeline called the Deben to Johannesburg pipeline. From the 31st of March, this line will be out of service. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.82 to the South African rand. It's at 9.39 in Botswana and at 9.43 in Zambia. 7.1 pence to the British pound, 8.1 cents to the euro. Gold, $1,334. Platinum, $922 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $67.87 cents a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoku for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Fili Lingwati. Sports update this hour. We begin with the Commonwealth Games news. Protesters on the Gold Coast halted the Queen's Baton relay in the lead-up to the tonight's opening ceremony for the Commonwealth Games. More than 50 stolen wealth games protesters calling for justice for indigenous Australians blocked Sea Well Drive as police negotiators were brought in. Those carrying the Queen's Baton, similar to the Olympic torch relay, were unable to get past the wall of protesters before emergency services helped them through. Wearing T-shirts and holding signs saying, No justice, no games, they were protesting British colonization of Australia. A protesters told Channel 7 that what they wanted to do is to make it clear to the mob, make it clear to the world, and make it clear to their people that they are standing strong. The group will also appear opposite Carrara Stadium, the venue for tonight's opening ceremony, to continue making its message heard. 
And the International Olympic Committee says seven cities or joint bidding cities have expressed interest in hosting the 2026 Winter Olympics. Canada's Calgary, Austria's Graz, Swedish capital Stockholm, Sion in Switzerland, Tegi's Ezrum, Japan's Sapporo, and a joint bid from Italy's Cortina da Penzo, Milan and Turin are all in the initial process. The cities will now enter a dialogue stage until October when the IOC will invite an unspecified number of them to take part in the one-year candidature phase. IOC Olympic Games Executive Director Christopher Duby says the new norm aims to fine-tune almost every aspect of the Olympics in an effort to reduce costs, complexity, risk and waste. The games will be simpler and cheaper to deliver. But the candidature process has been reviewed as well. We've made it far easier for the candidate cities. We are starting from the very beginning in the spirit of co-construction and partnership with the IOC. We have a lot of expertise to help the cities with people who have done the games before to make sure the plans are solid and they fit with the long-term perspective of the communities. As a result, these are stronger and better projects. The 2022 Winter Games will be held in Beijing after four other cities dropped out of the bid race for fear of soaring costs and size of the Olympics, leaving the Chinese capital and Kazakhstan's Almaty as the only candidates. On to football news, Cristiano Ronaldo scored twice, including a stunning bicycle kick as Real Madrid took control of the Champions League quarterfinal against Juventus with a convincing 3-0 first leg win. The Real forward made history with his opener when he prodded home ice scores cross, becoming the first player to score in 10 consecutive Champions League games. The Italian side had chances to equalize in a decent first half, although Tony Cruz went close to doubling Real's lead when he hit the crossbar with a 25-yard effort. In another clash, a Frank Ribery inspired Bayern Munich came from behind to take control of the Champions League quarterfinal with Sevilla. A Jesus Navas' own goal from Ribery's low cross and Thiago Alcantara's deflected header from the France's international delivery after the break extended the visitors' winning run in Europe this season to eight consecutive games. Sevilla made the brightest start and led when midfielder Pablo Sarabia scored after earlier missing a golden opportunity from eight yards at Estadio Ramon Sanchez Biruan. And finally, with the cycling news. The Team Dimension Data Continental Outfit took on the UCI Under-23 GP Palio del Rocio in Italy and young South African Stefan de Bord took an emphatic solo victory after attacking on the final climb of the race. The GP Palio del Rocio took place in Negrara in Italy and was raced over a distance of 151 kilometers. It was the third time Dimension Data's Continental team took part in this prestigious UCI Under-23 race with Emmanuel Gebrezagbir, who now rides for World Tour Outfit, finishing in third place back in 2016. The board said it was a really tough race with more than 3,000 meter accent over 151 kilometers. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine.
Afrika Zora Afrika amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa South Sudan peace talks set to resume in Addis Ababa and Botswana's new president vows to tackle youth unemployment. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsu Ramagadza and Komutsu Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Sipo Mabuse with a song titled Nelson Mandela.
Oh, my God. 